You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. So recently there was a headline article in New York Magazine titled, The Rise of Scandal Insurance in Hollywood. Movie companies are feeling the need now to buy what they call, get this, reputational insurance for their stars, lest their investment in a major project be destroyed by a scandal by one of the stars. And for the last decade, this has actually been a growing business in Hollywood, and the future for this business seems even brighter because of the increasing number of scandals by the stars and because of social media, and now stars aren't able to get away with as much as they were able to get away with in the past. Of course, Hollywood has, has built and has been built around uh, these celebrity brands and associating with these celebrity brands, so it is dependent on the celebrities being scandal-free. And so as a result, reputational insurance is now being included in the cost of future projects, um, the making of movies. That's included in the cost. Well, I can't imagine what the cost of the reputational insurance would have been for Abraham. Um, We saw in what he did in Egypt uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 15, and he compromised his wife with the Pharaoh. And then we saw in Genesis 16 last week, it doesn't get a whole lot better. We see that the father of Israel committing an illegitimate act built upon illegitimate thinking because of the acceptance of an illegitimate cultural norm that gave rise to an illegitimate relationship between him and Hagar that produced a child. There are no illegitimate children, but there are illegitimate relationships sometimes behind Uh, uh, these precious image bearers. And at this point, there is nothing that Abram needs more than for God to reaffirm his promise, just like when we have fallen. The issue here is how does God extend his kingdom plan through such a sinner as Abram? Well, the answer is found in Genesis 17, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 14 tonight. Now, before we get into this this chapter, I want you to consider how important this chapter is in the New Testament, how important it is uh, for the Christian life. Get this. This chapter is quoted 10 times in Hebrews, 8 times in Galatians, 8 times in Romans, pretty important books of the New Testament. In fact, it's a central chapter that that Peter gleans from when he preaches the sermon at Pentecost, and even Stephen, um, he recites this chapter uh, as he is being stoned to death as the first martyr in the church. And the reason it's so important, we, we see right off the bat, we see in this chapter 
the Savior of the covenant. Look with me at the first part of verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, age 99, uh, for one thing, this reminds us that you never retire from being used of the Lord, all right? So this man's 99. You say, well, that wasn't old then. It was old then. And, and so this reminds us that God is still using his people even when they have reached a ripe old age. But Moses is connecting this chapter. Remember, the chapter divisions were added later. Moses didn't have those chapter divisions, but there is an interconnectedness between chapter 7 and chapter 16 in the fact that chapter 16 ends with Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And here, Abram is now 99 years old. In other words, he's highlighting the 13-year wait. And many scholars believe that it appears that Abram prolonged the, the fulfillment of the promise by trying to help God out. God does not need our help. We saw that last week. And one of the reasons he doesn't need our help is because of this name that is revealed to us about him. He is God Almighty. Now, if you have a footnote in your Bible, you, you see the name, and many of us know this name because of a Michael Card song that was written, I believe, in the 80s or perhaps late 70s, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. That's the name here. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And so one of the things we're going to see in this chapter is that God is going to reaffirm his promises to Abram. He's going to strengthen his weak faith by revealing to him four new names. The first new name he reveals is a name about God himself. He says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. The second name we'll see later on in our passage tonight, Abram's name will be changed to Abraham. Next week we will see that Sarai's name will be changed to Sarah, and then they're going to have a son, and his name will be Isaac. But first of all, let's think about this name, El Shaddai. Now, any good theology book has a chapter on the names of God or a section on the names of God, the attributes of God, the images of God, <clears throat> on the Trinity. But generally, there's a section or a chapter on the names of God. And, and it's important to have books like that to teach us. But remember, when God reveals a name to us in the Bible, it always comes in the context of a crisis. In other words, God's people are in crisis. God's never in crisis. God's people are in crisis, and God reveals something about himself in that crisis. And in particular, he gives oftentimes a new name. 
Now, God's not in process of becoming. This is who he is. But sometimes you have to go through a particular struggle to really ascertain and discern something about God. So in other words, you can read that he is uh, the God who provides. But if you have everything you need, that really doesn't hit home with you. But when you are strapped of everything and you need him to provide and you read God is Yahweh Jireh, he's just made your day, okay? Well, this name comes in the context of a great need. And the need is this, Abram and Sarai are impotent. And there's nothing to do about it. They just keep getting older. So the problem keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, and then it's at this moment God comes to them and says, I am God Almighty. If he had revealed this to them 23 years earlier, it probably would have meant something. But it, it, it means a whole lot more with them having to wait 23 years in fact, this will be the name, the primary name, by which the patriarchs come to know God. As God will later say to Moses in chapter 6 of Exodus, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. So, uh, Sometimes people get confused. Well, I thought he revealed himself as Yahweh, as Lord in Exodus 3. And this is the name by which he wants to be known throughout all generations. So what gives when God is giving himself another name here? Well, he is Lord. That's the most fundamental reality of who he is. He's Yahweh. He is the great I am. But these other names are filling out what that means. In other words, he is Lord. And one of the expressions of his lordship is that he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. That's what it means when he says, I am Yahweh. I am Lord Almighty. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Interestingly, this is the, the primary name used in Job to encourage him when all hell is broken loose. El Shaddai is used, get this, 31 times in the book of Job. Why would a guy struggling with having lost everything need God reveal himself as El Shaddai? Because he is sovereign in spite of what we see. He is all-powerful in spite of what we may feel. God is saying to Abram after he has really done something really scandalous in Genesis 16, in spite of you, I'm able to fulfill the promises I made to you. In fact, there is no need, and there was no need then to resort to expediency. I don't need your help. That's what he's saying in revealing this name to him. And again, as I said last week to young people, uh, young people generally want to be married, but oftentimes they believe God needs their help and they settle. You don't need to settle. God knows where you are, He is the God who sees. And the God who sees is El Shaddai. That's deeply encouraging. And the way we live is determined largely by what we think about this God. If we understand him and truly believe he is El Shaddai, you think it's going to reflect itself in our living? 
Do you think it will help us overcome our tendency towards anxiety or discouragement or discontentment? Any thoughts of God that are less powerful than the reality that he is El Shaddai, it will shrink your soul and neutralize your faith. And so we have to meditate on these names because they reveal something really true and important about who this God is. Now, in light of the reality, he is El Shaddai. He commands Abram in the second part of verse 1, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, blameless certainly doesn't mean perfect. There's only one, one man who has ever walked the earth who was perfect, who never disobeyed God, who loved the Lord his God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength and his neighbor as himself. But blameless does mean above reproach. Okay? It means a man or a woman who when he or she sins is more notorious in their repentance than they are in their sin. And here he is recommissioning Abram. Now, this is, to me, amazing in light of the fact that Abram has, in recent uh, chapters, shown himself as anything but blameless. So how can Abram all of a sudden be what he hasn't been? Yes, there's been moments of great faith, but there's also been moments so embarrassing and shameful that Jerry Springer wouldn't have touched it with a 10-foot pole. Remarkable acts of, of just horrible uh, unbelief and, and sin. Well, God reveals his answer to that question, how can Abram be blameless? And in light of the fact that he hasn't been blameless... In, he reveals this in several ways. First of all, God is almighty. In other words, as I said this morning, because of who he is as the Lord God almighty, he resources his people to be what they're not and to do what they have not done. All right? And, and as we saw in Genesis 15, God revealed himself to Abram and, it's, and, and he gave him a gospel promise, and it says that Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteous. And so Abram has already been justified. His sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven. But he, he is not in practice what he is by position. And so when God calls him to be blameless, what God is doing now is he's making him in practice what he is in his position. He is going to make him blameless. This brings us to the second aspect of what it means to be blameless. Not only does he transform Abram in his person, he transforms his purpose. What, why do I say that? Notice, he says that I may make a covenant between me and you. Now, I think that verb make is an unfortunate verb because 
the semantic range for that Hebrew word can also mean confirm. And the reason I say it's important is because he's already made the covenant. He made the covenant in Genesis 15. Remember, he had Abram cut off those animals uh, and, and God passed between those animal parts. That was a sign that if you are not faithful to the covenant, the curse of the covenant will fall on me. God had made that covenant already with Abram. And so I think a better translation here is, is confirm the covenant. And so, but from there, we saw in chapter 16 that Abram was still struggling with a lot of unbelief. And so here, I think we are seeing the grace of God. And I want you to note Abram's response. How do we know he has understood grace? Well, he worships. That's always the response to someone who has experienced the grace of God. Notice with me in verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Abram likely thought God was done with him. All right? And now God comes to him and reaffirms that covenant that he made with him, and yet he still has expectations for Abram. It's like a coach who takes this player who has really blown it and that player thinks he's about to be benched forever. And that coach says to this player, now when you go back in there, I want to see you raise your game. All right? He has just encouraged that player who thought he was going to be forever benched. I think that's what is going on here. God has gone to this man who believed he's about to be benched. Uh, that The promises that God made to him are about to be uh, pulled back, okay? That's not what he does. And Abram falls on his face in worship. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. In spite of you, is what he's saying to him. Not because of you. Covenant is always grounded in the grace of God. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This isn't just Israel. It includes Israel. You shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Get this, and this is going to sound like Genesis 128, where he tells the original Adam to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So this brings us to the second name that God reveals to Abram. The first name, I am El Shaddai. The second name, you're no longer Abram. Your name is now Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. But to, to drive home the fact that in spite of Abraham, God was going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham, he gives him a new name. How encouraging. It would be like the player who's really blown it. He's missed every tackle. And then the coach comes to him and says, I'm going to make you the captain of the defense. That's essentially what he's saying here. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and make you in 
to nations. I'm going to change your name to Father of a host of nations. So think about this. Every time Abraham thought about his new name, which means every time somebody called him, he thought about that new name. He thought about grace. He thought about a covenant made with him that he didn't deserve. All right? And hence, he remembered his purpose. In other words, this promise to Abraham is renewing the vision for God's image bearers that was established in Genesis 1 and 2. It had originally been given to Adam, and then it was passed on to Noah to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9. And now Abram is, or Abraham is being depicted as a, as a second Adam, if you will, another Adam. Well, the second way that, that God encourages him is by the rehearsal of this covenant promise. I mean, again, this is just reminding him, I've not put you on the shelf in spite of you. So verse 6 begins a series of 12 statements. And, and you'll see these statements here. You can underline them in your Bible. I will, I will, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And then you will, you will. So there's this relationship. The ground of the covenant is God's, God's promises, God's provision, and the reality that God will absorb the debt. God will take the wrath on himself if his uh, covenant partner does not stay faithful. And yet he has responsibility given to his covenant partner. He says, I will do these things, but you will do these things over and over again. Now, I want you to imagine uh, this promise. You've got this tent dweller. He, he was a nobody from Ur of the Chaldeans, and now kings will come from him. Of course, we know uh, because we have read the end of the story. I had a friend uh, several years ago who would always pick up a novel and read the last chapter of the novel, and it always drove me crazy. But she knew the end of the story, and then she wanted to read how she got to the end of the story. On Thursday, I take the Braves. They played a day game, and then Kevin comes up to me and says, mm, wow, Braves won a game, big game today. I knew the end of the story. I wanted to punch him in the nose, but I knew the end of the story. But then I went and watched how they won the game, right? Well, you're seeing this here. Um, these kings will come from Abram, but we've already read the end of the story. And we know that it will begin really with a man named David. And then all the way through it will unfold to King Jesus so that when Matthew begins his gospel, here's what he says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David. And then it'll be through this king that you will have a multitude of nations that are grafted into Abraham. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 29. Well, notice in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of all your sojournings. Now, every other religion in the world, chapter 16 would have been remarkable, perfect obedience from Abraham. But that's not our faith. Our faith is grounded in grace. You don't expect this after you read Genesis 16, do you? This is remarkable mercy and grace. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their, their God. So this phrase, and your offspring, or maybe your translation says, and your seed, the Hebrew word is seros, the same word found in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would come and crush the seed of the serpent. It occurs six times in, in, Gen in Genesis 17. But I don't want you to, don't let the familiarity of this passage to breed kind of a, a boredom with what's going on here. Try to stand in Abram's shoes. He's now 99 years old, and he has a 90-year-old wife. You know you're old when you are married to a younger woman, and she's 90. <laughs> and he says, I have made. It's as if it's already done. I have made you a father of nations. What would be your response? I don't even have a son. And I'm 99. And I get older every year. That's impossible. But impossible is not in the vocabulary of God. That's one of the reasons this text is so important for us. And sometimes we need a parent impossibilities for us to face, all right? So that the only place we can turn is to rest in this El Shaddai, all right? That's one of the ways he exercises our faith. The psalmist, Psalm 10, 14 says, to you, the helpless commits himself. In other words, it, it almost appears that a prerequisite for us to truly commit ourselves to this God is to feel helpless, all right? That's where Abram is. So having renamed Abram, Abraham, and having revealed himself as El Shaddai um, and what he would do as El Shaddai, he now is going to inform Abraham his responsibilities in the equation. Again, this is not works-based. The works are on God's part, but Abraham has a responsibility, okay? This, this is the obedience of faith. This is not Abraham earning his favor with God. He has it in spite of Abraham, all right? That brings us to the sign of the covenant. We've seen the Savior of the covenant. We'll briefly go through this, the sign of the covenant. Look with me in verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Again, this is not Abraham obeying so that he might live. This is obeying in the obedience of faith in response to the mercy and the grace of God. 
Okay? Uh, now, in verses 4 to 8, God reiterated the covenant blessing that He would bestow on Abraham, and He began by saying, As for me, here He says, notice, as for you. Now, this sounds daunting, considering Abraham's track record, all right? Again, the, the athlete who's missed all the tackles, and you know, God is, or the coach is saying, you go back in there, and here's what I want you to do. It sounds kind of daunting, doesn't it? That brings us to the third way God encourages Abraham. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to remind Abram permanently of his promise through a sign, a covenant sign. So it's the same way when we get married. A, a groom places a sign of the covenant he's making. He's not in contract. He's in covenant with his bride, and he places a sign of that covenant on her finger, right? God gives a sign to Abraham to remind his bride, and we are the bride of, of God, the bridegroom, that he will pay the price necessary for the covenant to stay intact. All right? That's the reminder. Notice with me in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Funny story. This is off the topic. We were watching Nativity Story of Jesus, and they took Jesus in on the eighth day to, to be circumcised. And, and Nate was about four or five. And he said, Dad... Did they do that to me? And I said, not yet. And his eyes, <laughs> his eyes got really big. <laughs> Verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So this is stunning when you consider the context. After verse 12, um, I mean, or after you've got this, these statements, I will, I will, God's primary requirement of Abraham, not his only requirement. You saw him to walk and be blameless. His primary requirement is to bear the sign of God's faithfulness to the covenant. It's quite remarkable. Abraham's primary role is to point everyone to the covenant faithfulness of God. To bear the sign that points away from his ability. 
because his ability is pretty weak, right? And towards God's ability to keep the covenant and maintain the covenant. Same way with baptism. It's the same way. But this sign is shocking. But circumcision plays a major role in the Old Testament. Don't have time to go into all of these, but I'm giving you one. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. What's significant here is that circumcision involves Abraham's power of procreation. That's not arbitrary. That's the area of his life which he has resorted to carnal means, carnal and fleshly expediency, where he believed God needed his help. So for Abraham's circumcision, this this was an act on his part of repentance and a sign of his faith in God's covenant promises, all right? So this is not work salvation. This is Abraham responding in faith by the sign of the covenant. Just like with baptism, baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is a response that reveals, I believe my God is a saving God, and he has done all that is needed for my salvation. He was the one crucified. He was the one buried. He was the one raised from the grave. The rite of circumcision also is a reminder that all covenants are ratified in blood. All covenants are ratified in blood. But most importantly, It reflects God's faithfulness to us in spite of us. That's that's one of the main, main points of the sign of the covenant. His faithfulness to maintain the covenant with us even when we go astray, even when we rebel, even when we sin, even if Abram has an affair with Hagar. Now, how will he do that? We're going to come to a close here. I believe the way you read your Bible is you read it just like you would read a, a novel. Though this is not a novel, this is, the, 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 the tr- this is true history, but just like you would read a novel in light of the end, we would read the Old Testament in light of fulfillment. And here's what Paul says in Colossians 2. In him, that is Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's saying that circumcision was a shadow pointing to something else, something even greater. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see what he's saying there? He's saying ultimately circumcision points to the cross. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Get this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. God was canceling the debt that Abram owed. And he had a lot of debt, didn't he? This he set aside. Here it is. Nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Jesus' body was cut away for our sins. He was cut off from God because of our sin. Conversely, and we close here, verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What this is saying is if you don't take the covenant sign, that reflects the fact that you are an unbeliever and you are not receiving the grace of God by faith, the mercy of God by faith, the provision of God by faith. A common phrase in the Old Testament for God making a covenant with His people is to cut a covenant. You see it over and over in the Old Testament. It's the same verb that's used here. For one who will be cut off from the covenant people if they are uncircumcised. So in circumcision, we have a, a two-edged sword. It either cuts one into the covenant or it cuts one out of the covenant. The response being whether you believe, receive it by faith or not. So let's connect the dots. Give me one minute here. I think that we can infer that God is saying by this sign, circumcision, that no God-ordered life can be done without remembering the cross. All right? Because that's where circumcision points to, the cross and the resulting circumcision of the heart that occurs for those who are in Christ. He seems to be saying this, we must remember the cross so vividly that it's even scarred into our flesh. Secondly, and we close here, we must remember that sinners like us are called and commissioned only because the cross is sufficient. Just what he was teaching Abram. The cross is sufficient. He is saying, remember, remember. That's the reason for the sign. Of course, we know that that sign um, points us to the cross, and for those who are in Christ, we now have a new covenant sign, and that's the sign of baptism. Of course, under the old covenant, you had believers and unbelievers who were all a part of the covenant community. Because everyone was circumcised, right? Every male was circumcised. Under the new covenant, everyone shall know him. Only those who were of faith received that covenant sign. That's why we are Baptist. But as Josh and, those, and the musicians come forward, we realize that, again, not everyone can have this covenant sign because they are not in Christ the one who, who took the cross for our sins. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time 
or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.